0: Following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July fifteenth at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. You get settled, go ahead and grab your Bibles and make make your way to Psalm thirty one. That's where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to put this here for the moment. We're going to be in a few different places, um, but we will primarily be referring back to Psalm 31. It's going to be a bit of a home base for us this morning. Um, Psalm 31, particularly verses 1 and 2. Let's read those, and then we'll pray, and we'll spend our time together this morning. Psalm 31, verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would continue to extend the grace that you have already shown us in bringing us here. Lord, the work of your spirit that has brought us here this morning, we ask that you would extend that work to our time now in your word and that your spirit working through your word would do the work of helping us to see the expansiveness of your grace to us through your son grace for our forgiveness grace for our cleansing the increasing work of your spirit making us like your son Lord for that to happen it's a miracle and so we ask that you do the very thing that only you can do this morning we ask it in Jesus' name amen it is a normal for us, if you are new with us, to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, thought by thought, but on occasion throughout the year, sometimes at holidays, most often in the summertime, we will diverge from that pattern and, and do thematic studies sometimes. Sometimes they're on themes, sometimes they're on smaller portions of the Bible, but we'll, we'll kind of veer away. And so in June, if you were with us, you know we spent the weeks of June looking at different Psalms and we would walk through the Psalm, but we were looking thematically at the picture that God gives us in the Psalm of the well-rooted life, the, the joyful life and the things that tend to rob us of that joy and how we respond to those things. And, and then in July, we started a new series that series will be intermittent throughout the summer. It'll have stops and starts along the way, but you'll be hearing from different pastors here regarding how God has used his word in particular at different moments in their life to impact them, to transform them in different stories of their life and their engagement with God's word and his, the sufficiency of his word in their life. And we're affectionately calling that series the, the mixtape series. And If you were with us last week you heard pastor Ray talk about that time in his life as a young man where he would spend Saturday morning with the tape deck on pause and play and record and listen to Casey Kasem's top 40 so he'd get all the songs that he wanted to get well I did that as well every Saturday morning my tape deck had a blank tape in it listening to Casey Kasem and you know what I never realized as a young man the top 40 never changed You know how many weeks it takes for songs to move off the top 40? Like one new song would be introduced a week, but I've said, you know, I gotta get that song every time. time. I would do it every Saturday. But here's the thing. The magic in the mixtape for me was not that I somehow had a way to have the collection of my favorite songs in one place without having to go and buy all those tapes that I couldn't afford. The magic of the mixtape for me is when I would take that collection of songs and I'd put it on the left side of my dual tape deck. I'd put an empty one on the right side of my dual tape deck. And I would very carefully and intentionally go through all of those songs and record certain ones on that other tape to put together a tape to tell a story to someone else. If there was a certain someone who had caught my attention And I was wanting to find a way to communicate my feelings and my affection. The way that we would do it was through a mixtape. You'd get the right songs put in the right order that said the right things and carried the right themes all the way through it. And you'd find a way to leave it in their locker. Or at one point when I was a senior, this girl left one in my Jeep on on the console, already queued up in the tape deck. She had a boyfriend. And we liked each other. But I always was moving around, and I turned my car on, all of a sudden the tape started playing, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And I knew what she was saying. I played that tape all summer. The magic of the mixtape, it wasn't just being able to have all these songs. It was the ability to take these songs that seemed so random on a tape and put them together to to tell a message all the way through. And so when I think about this series for us this summer, I feel the same way. I want you to understand these aren't disparate texts and disparate preachers and different weeks just kind of coming and doing random things. All together, there's a story that's being woven through that God is weaving through. There's a story, if you listen for it throughout the summer, of the sufficiency, the experience, expansiveness, the magnitude of the gospel to impact and to transform sinful men and women like you and I. My track, so to speak, this morning on the tape has specifically to do with a work that God is doing in my life. He started probably about five years ago. I'll tell you the story in a few minutes. And he's continuing to do even today. But It's a work that God has been doing in my life to rescue me from an incomplete or an underestimated or even a suppressed sense of the power of his gospel for my life. I grew up in the church as a child from from birth until I, I left home for the most part. There weren't many weeks unless I was playing somewhere as a teenager There weren't many weeks that I wasn't in church. I had heard tens of thousands of hours of teaching and preaching from the Bible as I had grown up. Even as a, a young child, I understood from that teaching that I was a sinner, that I was guilty, and in order to be forgiven and made innocent before God, I needed Jesus, I understood that I was guilty and I needed him in order to be received. Now, that is a fundamental truth of what we call the gospel. See, every single one of us is guilty of of what the Bible calls a high treason against the king, all of us are guilty. We have all rebelled against God. We have all transgressed his commands, the Bible says. We have all crossed and violated his standards. Every single one of us born onto this earth is guilty of lying and coveting and disobedience. We all stand guilty and condemned by our own actions, deserving God's just judgment for our treason. All of us. Our crimes deserve and they will receive God's just punishment, which is an eternal death penalty for our treason. That is unless somehow there is a way for you and I to be declared innocent without God violating his own holiness and justice. You realize that is the biggest complication and issue in the gospel to say it this way, the biggest problem in the gospel is actually God's. How is God going to declare treasonous men and women like you and I innocent without violating his own perfect holiness and justice? Well, it's exactly what he's done. And the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without in any way, shape, or form, or fashion compromising the justice and holiness of God. And he did it through the life, death, and substitutionary atonement of his son Jesus in our place for our sins. For all who by the grace of God believe upon Jesus as their king and as their savior, you by the grace of God are proclaimed and declared innocent in the eyes of God. That is what we call justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Yes and amen, fundamental to the gospel. May we never, ever, ever leave that reality. But here's the thing. As good as that is, there's actually more. And though I might have known there was more at some point in my mind, I didn't really believe it or understand it. You see, I probably got saved, so to speak, 20 times between the ages of of five and and 20. Because no matter how many times I heard about my guilt and confessed my need and Jesus' sufficiency, no matter how many times the the church that I was sitting in saying about being washed in the blood of Jesus, I always left feeling dirty. So I come back again, and in my filth, confess my need and receive forgiveness and walk out feeling dirty. I never understood it. And it wasn't until about four and a half years ago, or maybe five, I can't get the date exactly, but five years ago, that I began to realize that my sense of shame was much more well-rooted went much deeper in my heart than my sense of God's salvation. Now, see, the problem was, up until this point, I didn't know that that was the case. I didn't know that that's what this was. And it's only been in the last four and a half to five years that God has been opening up my eyes to it. See, I understood and believed and treasured the gospel for my guilt. Yes and amen. No one had ever talked to me about my shame. So five years ago, I was sitting in a group counseling session with four other, five other pastors. I'm in, a, I'm in a cohort that many of you know about where we get together three to four times a year for two or three days, and we spend time together, we pray together, uh, we help one another and encourage one another in, in the gospel. But in the first couple of years, we had different activities that we did, and, and two of these visits for three days, we met with a counselor together. And we're sitting in Nashville, Tennessee, and we're going through this. And it just feels awkward to someone like me. I'll explain the whole story in a little while, and you'll get why it was awkward for me. But we're sitting there, and we're doing this. And I don't know what led to the moment. I don't know what he was getting after. I don't even remember the conversation. But somehow he had us go to Psalm 31, read it alone, go to a different part of the house, read it alone, and begin to pray. And as I began to read Psalm 31... God began to do in me what you heard Pastor Ray talk about God doing in his heart the night that he began to read his word and God showed him something about himself that he had not really seen before. I began to read Psalm 31 and I began to hear David talking about his shame. And I began to hear David crying out to God for for deliverance, for rescue, for covering for his shame twice he talks about crying out to God, letting him not be put to shame. And I finally began to see what it was I had never begun to see about myself up to those nearly 40 years at that point. God began to use Psalm 31, and as we'll go through some of the rest of the Bible, more of a thematic picture of the gospel to open up my eyes to the breadth and the depth of his grace and began to get after some of the most broken parts of me and most misunderstood parts of my own heart and life. And I began to believe and and sense in my heart more than I knew in my mind and even could have taught you on a Sunday that Jesus did not simply come to deal with my guilt. He came more. He came to give more than just a blank slate of innocence. He came to deal with the defilement and the shackles of our shame. I began to realize five years ago or so that I had been underestimating the gospel for my entire life. And so if we're going to understand kind of the fullness of this, we're going to have to understand, in a sense, what shame really is. I didn't really have a great category for it. And so it's been a journey that I'm still on to really understand it, but if we're going to understand it, we're going to have to know what it is because here's the thing, shame is everywhere. The problem is in our world, in the West in particular, we misidentify it. We confuse it. And if we're going to understand what shame is, we're going to have to be able to differentiate shame from guilt because they're not the exact same thing. They are siblings, They're twins, so to speak, but they're not the same thing. Where one shows up, the other is most likely present. And there's a tremendous amount of overlap between guilt and shame, but it would take us weeks to be able to tease out all of the detailed nuances that differentiate them. So I'll try to do it in a broad stroke this morning and know that I can't hit all of the details, but the biggest distinction between shame and guilt is the story that they tell the narrative that they tell. Guilt says, I did something wrong. I did something terrible. Shame says, I am terrible. See, guilt is associated with actions. It's associated with transgressions. Guilt can be dealt with by confession, repentance, and the receiving of forgiveness for transgressing, for violating. But shame is like the scar that's left over. Shame can't be dealt with by simple confession and receiving of forgiveness because you didn't do anything wrong. Shame is a narrative that your heart begins to believe. That begins to define and attach itself to your identity. Guilt says, I feel bad about what I've done. Shame says I feel bad about who I am. And just this week, just this weekend, I was sharing a book review with with my wife. Fantastic book review written by an associate of mine. Tremendous pastor here in the States. It was a book review on Rosario Butterfield's latest book on hospitality. And in this book review, it's a great book review. He's being very honest, very vulnerable. He says, I wanted to put the book down at the end of chapter two because I was afraid of feeling guilty for not being able to live up to the extraordinary life that she presents to us in this book. That's not guilt. That's shame. And in the West, you and I are like toddlers having to learn a new vocabulary to deal with shame because in the West, the predominant way that we have thought about life in particular is on the scales and through the frameworks of innocence and guilt. But the rest of the world, for their entire being and civilization, has always operated on a framework of of shame and honor. But we, in the West, we're, we're having to learn an entirely new language about this. But I want to be fair, and again, there's so much that could be said, and maybe we'll take weeks to come to to talk more about it, but I want to be fair. There are legitimate forms of guilt and shame, okay? We have to be able to distinguish between the legitimate and the illegitimate. The legitimate forms of guilt and shame appear wherever sin appears. As you and I are convicted of our wrongdoing, and we feel appropriately sorrowful, We're driven to repentance and confession and receiving of forgiveness. Appropriate guilt and shame are there. But left unchecked, left misunderstood, illegitimate guilt and illegitimate shame become crippling realities to the soul. Now the last 10 years has brought a renewed interest and a new awareness to the West regarding shame. Again, we haven't had a language for it. We're like infants learning to talk about this. No one has been more at the forefront of this than a woman named Brene Brown. Some of you might be familiar with Brene Brown. She's a a psychologist and a researcher at the University of Houston. She's in a number of talks on on TED Ted, Ted Talks, TEDx Talks, written a number of books. She's the second most viewed TEDx speaker in all the history of TED, 42 million plus views. And her clinical work and her research work all revolves around this issue of shame and the reality of its impact on the brain and the reality of its impact on the social sphere and social life of humanity. And as she tries to get her head around it and define it, Brene Brown says that shame is an intense, painful feeling or experience of believing that you are flawed and therefore unworthy of being loved and belonging. Belonging. Along with her work and the interest in her work in the last decade, Christian publishers have been publishing book after book every year on the same thing. I could bring you seven different books dealing with the realities of shame, how to think about it, how to deal with it, that have all come out of trusted publishers in the Christian world in the last five or six years. We're just learning how to talk about it and everybody tries to put their finger on it and define it. But the reality of it is it's very difficult to define that way. But if you put all those definitions together, what you begin to see is that they all begin to point their finger back at the same core reality. That shame leaves this narrative in our soul that tells us that we're unacceptable. that in some sense, we're not worthy. We're unacceptable before others and we're unacceptable before God based on what we've done, how we feel, or maybe what's been done to us. And the story of my 40-plus years is a story that's been saturated in shame. The more I've come to understand what this is and begin to get language for it, the more I began to understand that my earliest memories and my earliest emotions all center around the reality and the presence of shame. Even as a toddler in, in preschool, what people would try to call anxiety, what people would try to call fear, what would cause my hands and my toes to peel to the point where I couldn't touch things. It was all boiling out of an intense sense of unworthiness that I felt inside. By age six or seven, I started hiding under the tables at my own birthday parties. I was so afraid that I would do something wrong. Please don't make me open those presents in front of everybody. Because what if I don't give the right reaction? Will you still like me? Will you still love me? The intense pressure to feel worthy of the presence and the attention of other people absolutely panicked me. Even as a kid, I tried not to allow my parents to come watch me play sports, the very thing that God had gifted me to do. Nothing would have made me happier, even as a seven-year-old, than for my parents to drop me off at practice or a game at the tennis court or the soccer field and leave. Because then maybe if I didn't live up to my own sense of perceived expectation, then maybe they wouldn't know and nothing would change between us. But what if I didn't? Would I still be worthy of the attention would I still be worthy of the effort? The best picture of it that I could come up with is that, for me, shame has always been like, like a barnacle on a boat. Even if it dies, it's still there. It's just always clinging to me. Everywhere that I go, there's this nagging sense of, you're not good enough. You're not worthy of this Acceptance. It's with me in every new environment that I walk into. It leaves me coming into rooms and situations wondering if I'm ever going to have a place in the group. And so for a kid who went to 18 different schools, who carried this barnacle with him everywhere he went, shame became a very isolating reality for me. It began to shape my very personality and my very understanding of myself because if I'm really myself, And if I'm really excited about this over here or really upset about this over here in this new group, will you still accept me? So I became the steady and unflappable person most people experience me as. Because it was the safest way for me to deal with my shame. Because what if I really was who I truly am? Would they still like me? 18 different times always going through this. No one talks about shame and dinner parties and social conversations, but every one I've gone to, it's always been with me. Shame is the dominant emotion that I feel whenever my failures are seen or witnessed by other people. That makes marriage and parenting and ministry very tricky. It might look like anger, it might look like frustration, but it's shame that I feel when someone spends time with me or my family and asks me if we've ever read Shepherding a Child's Heart. What do I do with it? Well, I turn around and give biting remarks to my wife. I try to direct my kids with that same shame that I feel. And it becomes cyclical because I realize what I've done and now I feel ashamed for it. Shame is a very tricky thing. It's a very nasty thing. See, guilt requires that I repent and seek forgiveness from my wife and from my children when I speak harshly, when I act impatiently, when I'm selfish. But it's shame that hangs around afterward. It's shame that insists, even after I've sought forgiveness and received it, it's shame that insists to me that I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad dad. And I always will be. If I can't figure out how to get out of whatever that thing was, at some point they're going to stop loving me. That's shame. Shame's a dominant emotion that I have felt for years at times on Monday mornings after a long Sunday. My wife could tell you, I've said it more times than I ever want to admit, in this shackle of shame, I think the church would just be better off with someone else. I'm not worthy of the hour they give us on Sunday morning. I'm not worthy of the opportunities that are there. It's not for me. Man, if they really knew. See, for the majority of my life, my sense of shame was much more well-rooted in my heart than my sense of God's salvation. And here's the thing, even though I'm standing up here, it's, it's my track in the series, it's, it's my story in the series. I say all this assuming that out there where you are, I'm not alone. Kurt Thompson is a Christian psychiatrist, and he wrote a fantastic book called The Soul of Shame. And In that book, he said to be human is to be infected with this phenomenon that we call shame. All that it requires is a pulse, meaning that if you're breathing, you're struggling with shame. You may be looking at it, you may be deflecting it, you may be hiding from it, but the reality is to be human is to struggle with shame. And in the last five years, I began to understand something and I'm still having to learn as God has been showing me this starting with that day in Nashville, Tennessee, that shame, if not the most predominant theme in the Bible, has to be at least the second most predominant theme in the Bible. The Bible deals with and speaks about shame over 10 times more than it speaks about and deals with the issues of guilt. And the way the Bible does it is through a series and a collection of of images and metaphors that start at the very beginning of the story. Reading through the story of the scriptures and the story of redemption, you'll hear over and over again the language of some becoming outcasts, of no longer belonging, of being cast out from their people, not fitting in, unlovable, failing. You'll hear over and over again the stories and the language of cleanliness and uncleanliness. To be unclean is to say and be proclaimed to you that something is wrong with you. And because you're unclean, you can't be out in public. You can't be with everyone else. And people can't be associated with you. And the uncleanliness the Bible speaks of and, and talks about it, it can come upon you by something that you've done or something that's been done to you or something you've been associated with. And from the very beginning of the story, the, the Bible speaks of the reality of shame and the dealing with shame and the story of shame through the imagery of nakedness. And what's the most predominant thought and emotion that comes to your mind when you think about nakedness? embarrassment, humiliation, the need to cover up, the desire to not be seen by everyone else. In fact, the story of the scriptures start with humanity, Adam and Eve in the garden, being pronounced by God good, naked and what? Not ashamed. That's where the story starts. Naked and not ashamed, which sets you up for what happens next in chapter three. Where the pronouncement comes now, they know that they're naked. And what? They're ashamed. Set apart from the presence of God in the garden. The story begins to unpack from there how are the outsiders, how are the shameful going to be restored from the place that their sin took them from? Oh man, we could trace this whole thing through the whole Bible if you wanted to. Ten times more than guilt and innocence, the Bible deals with shame. In fact, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Let's just look at it. I have been thinking on this for a while now and trying to make sense of it in my own life. In Genesis chapter 2, before the first sin, the descriptive word that Moses uses to define the experience of Adam and Eve was the very opposite of shame. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. They were both naked and not ashamed, unashamed, sinless, righteous, perfect, completely vulnerable, transparent, deeply known, highly treasured. They found themselves by God's intention and God's design and God's creation in a place of His making that was good and perfect and right and absolutely true. And into that reality came an enemy in the form of a serpent, a serpent who spoke words. And this enemy told an entirely different story. He began to create an entirely different narrative. He began to raise questions. He began to suggest doubts. He began to distort God's good word to Adam and Eve, and he began to deceive them. And we know the story. They believed his lie. They believed his narrative. And they rebelled. They committed high treason against the king. And in their shame, what did they do? Open up to Genesis chapter 3. Let's just read it. Two most common things we find resulting from the awareness of shame. After verse 6 in chapter 3, when they ate the fruit, verse 7 says, the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked and ashamed, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. From the very beginning of the story, shame has always produced the fruits of blaming and hiding in the lives of sinful people. When the scar of shame gets very sensitive in my own heart, when I recognize that in some way I've failed maybe to live up to my own sense of expectation or the expectations I perceive of other people, I immediately look for someone to blame. Whose fault was it Most commonly, we go back to the way we were raised. We always look for something to blame. But more than that, most specific and most emotionally present for us, the most instinctive response to shame is to hide. That's what we want to do. We want to find a way to be covered, we want to find a way to be hidden. We want to find a way to be unseen. And we hide our shame in 10,000 different ways. We could do a sermon every Sunday to the end of the year, just beginning to scratch the surface of all the different ways that you and I try to hide our shame. Heather Davis Nelson is a Christian counselor who's done a lot of work in the area of shame. And she says that, Shame comes in the form of presenting an airbrushed version of yourself, the version you want others to see free from struggle. The most common way we tend to hide our shame is by wearing the mask of I don't need anyone. We can hide in plain sight, she said, by being surrounded by people and being involved in things and yet not entirely honest about who we really are. In fact, she said, it's quite easy to hide behind the mask of a helper of others, She's writing to a Christian audience where that's quite a virtue, isn't it? It's quite easy to hide behind the mask of being a helper to others. To ask for help from someone else could trigger shame. What if they ignore your request? Or it could begin to trigger the shame for having to ask in the first place and not be self-sufficient. And so she said something profound to me. Hiding ultimately just feels safer than the possibility of being rejected or disappointed. To be human is to experience, in some measure, the reality of shame. It's touched everything. And yet, while shame is one of the most common emotions shared by all of us, the nasty little side thing of it is, part of its story is trying to make us feel like we're the only ones experiencing it. Shame becomes tremendously emotionally isolating. Shame left unchecked, shame left undealt with, shame allowing to scar over the heart becomes emotionally isolating. In fact, Psalm 31, David, as you begin to understand Psalm 31 through the perspective of shame, David is referencing this and speaking of this isolation that he's feeling in verse 11 when he says, because of all of my adversaries, I've become a reproach to my neighbors, an object of dread, to my acquaintances, those who see me in the street, they flee from me. I'm an outsider, I'm outside the camp, even those closest to me don't want to be with me. As you trace the reality of shame through the story of the scriptures and the different images that it gives us, even the idea of being unclean, there were shameful consequences for being pronounced unclean that would leave someone isolated. Leviticus 13 says of someone who would contract a skin disease that they should remain unclean as long as you have the disease. And here's what it says. He shall live alone. His dwelling will be outside the camp. What a picture of what it feels like for those of us who tend to dwell in shame. An ever-present exclusion from everyone. An ever-present sense of dwelling outside the camp, whatever that camp may be, your family, your job, your, your peer group, whatever. It's the voice of shame and the narrative of shame that continues to tell me you're not worthy of that inclusion that I began to hear most profoundly when I was 12 years old living at a sports camp. I left home when I was 12 to live at a sports academy in another part of North Carolina, and I was by far the least talented one there. And there were two people that were there who made sure I understood that. Day in and day out, they wanted me to understand that I was not worthy of being there. I wasn't good enough, I wasn't capable enough, I didn't deserve it, someone else should have had my place, I wasn't wanted, I wasn't accepted. We went to the public school in the area, everyone knew us as the sports kids because we took a bus there and they would drop us off and we all had to practice before school or practice after, they just knew who we were. And these two kids began to say those same things to everyone there at the school to the point where I felt like I didn't belong anywhere and everyone, like David said, was fleeing from me in the streets. It's this sense of of being unworthy as a person. I've carried that with me ever since those years into every new setting I would go into. How long is it going to be before they turn and flee from me? how long is it gonna be in this school or how long is it gonna be in this place or how long is it gonna be in this city, how long is it gonna be in this group before they understand who I really am and whatever it is that's in me that seems to repel them and they're gonna flee from me because I'm not worthy of their attention. So the narrative of shame tries to get us to believe a story that says there's something deeply disturbing about who we are. And the result of that is not being worthy of someone else. And it creates a tremendously isolating reality for those who dwell in it. And not only that, shame absolutely steals our true joy. We've spent some time talking about joy in the Psalms in the month of June. True joy is a mark of freedom And shame utterly steals joy. Shame shackles us from experiencing freedom. David in Psalm 31, verse 10, is being honest when he says, My life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails me because of my iniquity. His life has been marked by this sense in this moment of this shame. And if I was going to be really honest, up until that point about five years ago, and I don't know how much of, it, of this part of the story has completely changed since, but if you were to ask me up until that point five years ago how I would describe being happy, I probably couldn't tell you. I generally don't get depressed, but I generally don't get elated. Shame and the fear of that exclusion and not being worthy has galvanized what most people experience me as as being pretty steady and unflappable. Because if I'm up here, well, what if you don't like it? And if I'm down here, what if I'm not worthy of you receiving me anymore? So I'm right here. And if you were to ask me what it was like to be happy, I'm not sure I could have told you. In fact, if you were to ask my wife and my kids, what's it like for dad to be happy? I'm not sure they could have told you. I wasn't angry, I wasn't mean, but to describe what it was like to be happy, I don't know. But if you were to ask me to describe what it was like to be ashamed, man, I could bend your ear for hours in vivid detail. Never being able to shake the feeling of not measuring up. Not measuring up to God, not measuring up to others, Even though I knew the truth in my mind, there was a different story in my heart. And so it's been in the last five years that God through his word and through his people has been teaching me something. And here's what he's been teaching me. And he started with Psalm 31. He's been teaching me that this impulse to hide, it's not entirely wrong. See, the impulse that is wed to shame is the impulse to hide. But here's the thing, the impulse to hide isn't entirely wrong. When it comes to shame, you and I will always hide. The issue is where will we hide? You see, if you were here last week when Raymond said that God has been using his word and using his people to teach him that there's a new way that he has to count God has been teaching me in the last five years, and man, I'm still at the toddler level. He's been having to teach me that there's a new way to hide. See, in Psalm 31, David prays, in you, Lord, let me take refuge. Let me not be put to shame. See, in our shame, we're either going to hide from God and hide from others, or we're going to have to learn how to hide in God. The only way to be released from the shackles of shame is to learn how to hide in God. See, God has dealt with the guilt of our sin. Yes and amen. But God has also dealt with the depth of our shame. The best the world can offer when it comes to shame. If you go and read great works Brene Brown has written, go watch her videos. There's so much wisdom there that she has. But the best the world has to offer is for you and I to simply acknowledge our shame, identify it, and find empathy from someone else in it. But guess what? Identify it. Get it out there. Get a listening, empathetic ear. You're still standing there naked and exposed with nothing to cover you. Nothing to cleanse you. Nothing to be able to say to the deepest recesses of your soul, you're wanted here. Just naked and heard. God has done so much more than deal with the reality of our guilt. Yes and amen. The good news is that God, through Jesus, has covered our shame that he has provided the very refuge that David was crying out for. I have always read the Psalms and all of the cries for refuge, for God to be a strong fortress, for him to be a mighty tower, to hide myself in him. I have always read those Psalms through the lens and the perspective of being hidden and protected from wrath and judgment. And yes and amen, that's true. But go and read Psalm 31. The covering, the safety, the security that David is looking for is a covering for his shame. And God has provided the very thing that our heart so instinctively needs and cries out for. And he did it by sending his son who bore our shame and suffered our rejection, our exclusion in our place on the cross. You see, the only beloved son of God was cast out from the presence of God on the cross. And the one who knew no sin was made sin, and on his body he bore all of the dishonor, all of the shame, all of the uncleanliness that is rightly reserved for those who have sinned against God all of us guilty of high treason, enemies of the king, rightly deserving the shame, the dishonor, the uncleanliness for our sin. He took it all on himself so that by God's grace, through faith in him, you and I can have everything that he deserved. You and I would find a covering for our shame No longer wearing the chains of shame, but wearing the clothes of righteousness that only Jesus deserved. Cleansing from all of our defilement. Acceptance from being outside the camp. Friends, Jesus took our nakedness and defilement on himself as he was rejected and crucified like an outcast so that by the grace of God, you and I could be clothed in his righteousness, cleansed from all sin, and adopted into the family of God. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, said it this way, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It wasn't until the last few years that I actually learned how to read that verse. You see, I have always read that verse and read despising the shame in the way that I think about despising something. I think about despising something as an extreme dislike for it, right? Like I despise tofu. Like an extreme dislike for that thing. That's not what the word means. I never understood that. Open up a dictionary of the Greek language and the Koine Greek and the Bible Greek dictionary. You can go and read for yourself that this word used here that we translate despising, it means to regard something as unworthy of concern when compared to something else. Now go read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus, who for the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? The relationship that he had left when he humbled himself and came to earth, the eternal relationship that he had had with the Father and the Spirit for all time. Jesus looked ahead to who he was in the eyes of his Father, who he was as he was known by his Father. And for the joy that was before him, he didn't count the shame that he was about to endure as worthy of his concern the shame of being crucified on a cross, the shame of being completely unclean and perfect and having the uncleanliness and the imperfection and the shame of someone else put on him, being killed outside of the camp as an outsider, he did not count that shame as worthy of his concern compared to who he knew he was and where he was going. Friends, by the grace of God, through faith in him, you and I find ourselves covered, secure, a stronghold and a refuge. And where there had been shame, there is now honor. Because God placed Jesus at his right hand, the place of all authority and honor. And by his grace, when we are hidden in him, that's exactly where we are. So what I've had to learn, and man, I'm still having to learn. is said, though I give Jesus, holy cow, 10,000 reasons every single day to be utterly ashamed of me, he never will be. He took that in my place. When that narrative starts playing in my heart, not worthy, not capable, I've had to learn, and I'm still having to learn. Guess what? It's not my shame. It's not mine. He took it. I got to let him have it. Not only is the narrative not true, it's not mine. It's his. So let him carry it. Let him take it. Let him deal with it. The story wants me to believe that every single day I give him more reasons than I could ever imagine to be ashamed of me. But the narrative of the gospel says, by the grace of God, he never will be. And for all of eternity, God will forever own me as his own. Friends, the gospel is for your shame. Please don't ever underestimate it or minimize it or reduce it. He knows you entirely. You may think there are some things that you have pushed down so far, some things that have been done to you in secret that no one knows, not even God, and the scar of that shame is so real and palpable on your soul. He knows you entirely. And he loves you completely and he intends for you to find refuge in that reality you see a day is going to come that he has promised when we will be free from the presence of shame but until then you and i get the privilege together of helping one another practice how to live in the freedom that we have been given by jesus through his spirit Remember, one of the reasons God has given us his spirit is to constantly bring back to our mind, to teach us, to remind us of all that God has said, of all that God has done, of all that God has promised, of all that he's accomplished in his son, and empower us to be able to live in the presence of that reality. We have the privilege together of practicing the reality of the freedom that we have in Christ, not only from our guilt, but from our shame. We get to help each other as long as it's called today to learn how to hide in an entirely new way. Because the gospel is not just for our guilt. The gospel is for our shame. Yes, he took our guilt and gave us his righteousness. But in the great exchange, he he took our uncleanliness. He took our dishonor. He took our unworthiness. I'm not worthy of this. I'm still not worthy of this. But guess who is? He is. Guess where I am? In him. Friends, this morning we get the privilege, even as we respond to God's word, of maybe for some of you for the first time, Maybe having believed in the power of the gospel for your guilt, yes and amen, assured of your presence before God for all of eternity by his grace through his son, but yet feeling so utterly unworthy. Well, in some sense, it's the right emotion when you recognize who really is worthy. Maybe this morning you can begin practicing that great exchange that he has achieved for us as we take a couple of minutes to reflect on his word before we respond and receiving communion, maybe you can allow Psalm 31, verse 1, to become your prayer. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Because of you, in you, what you've done for me through your son, in you I take refuge. I won't be put to shame. I won't live in the narrative of shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Set me free. Friends, David prayed that on one side of the cross. You and I live in the shadow on the other side with the sure and certain promises that this is real and true. As we take a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word, we're going to respond together by receiving communion for all who by the grace of God through faith in Christ have tasted not only the forgiveness that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus, but are even beginning for some of us to taste the cleansing that has come. Being set free from the shackles of shame, we are going to remember that sacrifice as we receive communion. We're gonna sing, maybe, if I didn't talk too long, and we're gonna be sent out from here as God's people, helping one another as long as it's called today to learn how to hide together in a new way. Let me pray for us and we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of of being gathered here and and Lord, I pray that you rescue us from the 10,000 different ways that we underestimate, we suppress, we minimize the expansiveness of your grace to us through your son. God, I've spent so many years settling for the grace of being forgiven while just thinking I had to feel so unworthy. That was just the reality underestimating the fullness of what you've done and what you want. God, help us to stop underestimating you. Lord, give us a taste and a sense of the fullness and the magnitude of your mercy towards us, Lord. Set us free from guilt and set us free from shame. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.